Coming up on Harvard Chan this week in health, making modeling safer. We've heard stories about models who are eating tissues to quell hunger pains. The state introducing legislation to regulate the modeling industry and how that bill could have an impact off the runway. Plus, the long-term impact of childhood cancer and why it could be tied to the treatment those children receive. And menus of change, the push to change our perception of what healthy food can be. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Friday, May 6th, and I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Montemuro. Noah, we begin this week with one state's new push to regulate the modeling industry. California lawmakers are now considering legislation that could create health standards and workplace protections for professional models. That bill was inspired in part by the work of two people at Harvard. Bryn Austin, professor of social and behavioral sciences at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. My name is Sarah Ziff, and I'm a an MPA candidate at the Kennedy School and the founder of the Model Alliance. Austin is also the director of the Harvard Chan School Strategic Training Initiative for the Prevention of Eating Disorders, also called STRIPED, and Ziff is a former model. She says the legislation in California takes three significant steps. It would clarify that models are employees, not independent contractors. It would clarify that modeling agencies are talent agencies, which need to be regulated and licensed as such. And it would establish health and safety standards in our industry. This follows similar legislation in other countries, including France, Israel, Italy, and Spain. And Austin says the focus on safety standards is critical, pointing out that many models are essentially just girls, often starting their career as young as 12 years old. She says that these young girls are often forced to maintain dangerously low weights to fit into runway fashion. If they work in this industry, they have enormous pressures to not eat, to, to eat um, inhumane uh, uh, diets of a rice cake a day. We've heard stories about models who are eating tissues to quell hunger pains. And this is because they are afraid they will be fired if they can't keep their body weight so low as to actually be uh, uh, gained through only through starvation, a starvation diet. Well, we know the long-term impact of eating disorders is enormous, and we also have good evidence that fashion models have higher rates of eating disorder symptoms and diagnoses of anorexia nervosa. Anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness. It's higher than substance abuse, higher than schizophrenia, higher even than depression. For a teenage girl with anorexia, a 16, 17-year-old with anorexia, she has 10 times the risk of dying in her teenage or young adult years than other girls who don't have anorexia. It's a big killer, and it can have lifelong effects on fertility, bone health, um, psychological development, education, employment, just in every aspect of life. Ziv says that the issues for models extend even further, which is why she says that regulating the modeling industry is as much of a labor issue as it is a health issue. And when it comes to modeling, there's a clear gap between the perception of the industry and the reality. So while the public might think of a star like Giselle when they think of modeling, that is far from reality for most women and girls in the industry. Ziff says they often receive low wages and are frequently victims of sexual harassment, which is why classifying models as employees and not independent contractors is a critical part of this new legislation. As an independent contractor, you have very few legal protections as a worker. You... uh, don't have the right to form a union. You don't have uh, wage and hour protections. Uh, you don't have the same protections against sexual harassment. Often models are working in trade, 
meaning, you know, they'll get paid a tank top or a tote bag for their work rather than money. And a lot of these girls are, at least when they start out, they're working in debt to their agencies. The modeling agency will basically book them jobs with clients, whether that's a magazine or a big brand. They incur various startup costs like putting together their modeling portfolio or, you know, travel or living in the agency-owned model apartment. And those expenses add up. And so they're sometimes they're working in debt to the very people whose interests they're supposed to be represented by. That can put them, I think, in um, a potentially compromised position if they're then told by their agency to go to extremes to lose weight or they're put on the spot to, say, take off their clothes at a casting call. It can be that much harder to say no. Both Austin and Ziff say this legislation will also have an impact off the runway. And that's because young girls are often bombarded with images of underweight models. One estimate by the National Association of Anorexia Nervosa and Associated Disorders found that 47% of American girls in 5th through 12th grade reported wanting to lose weight because of magazine pictures. Here's Austin again. One study found that 70% of tween and teen girls in the U.S. say they get the idea of what a quote-unquote perfect body is from magazine images. And what are these images? These images are of these same models who are working under conditions of coerced starvation. These models are on the brink of starvation with impossibly low body mass indexes whose own growth may be um, arrested by these uh, working conditions um, And then we see girls uh, emulating these images all across the country as the ideal of female beauty. If we can change the image of models in the mass media, that will have massive repercussions on the kinds of standards of beauty that girls and young women are receiving every day through our mass media. Both Austin and Ziff say that they're optimistic that the bill in California will be passed and eventually signed into law. They hope to introduce a similar bill in New York in the near future. And if you'd like to read more about their work, just head to our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. Medical errors are now the third leading cause of death in the United States. That's according to new research from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. According to the new analysis, medical errors ranked third behind heart disease and cancer, killing a quarter million Americans each year. And that includes surgical errors, misdiagnoses, and incorrect medications. But researchers say the toll of medical errors is often underestimated by the government and hospitals. They tell STAT that a major reason is insurance billing codes, which often miscategorize the true cause of someone's death. We spoke about this with Ashish Jha, who is director of the Harvard Global Health Institute and an expert on patient safety. He says that accurately tracking deaths from medical errors is important, but says that researchers shouldn't get caught up in a debate over which estimates are most accurate. Instead, he says the focus should be on finding ways to improve patient safety. If you called up a hospital CEO today and said medical errors occurred in your hospital in the last month, there probably is no CEO in America who can give you an honest answer. They don't know. Nobody knows. People don't track this stuff. So it's going to be very hard to improve it unless we begin to measure it kind of carefully and systematically. And then after that, we need, you know, we need programs and incentives to get people to start working on these issues. And, and that means everything from payments. So we should, uh, you know, we should organizations that have high medical error rates, they should probably get some sort of a financial penalty for that. 
but only if we do that stuff well. Um, there have been a lot of there's been a lot of talk about this kind of effort, but it just it hasn't been executed in a way that's really made a difference. The Johns Hopkins researchers say, and Ja agrees, that the culture in hospitals needs to change so people can talk more openly about their mistakes and work to address them. Do childhood survivors of cancer return to normal health as they grow older? A new study set out to answer that question and found that by the time they reach young adulthood, these survivors report health that is similar to middle-aged adults. The study was led by researchers at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and the Harvard Chan School. Researchers say a key factor in the health of childhood cancer survivors is the presence or absence of chronic conditions. We spoke with the study's lead author, Jennifer Yeh, a research scientist in the Center for Health Decision Science at the Harvard Chan School. She says the optimistic news from the study is that chronic conditions are not linked to cancer itself, but to the cancer treatment, such as chemotherapy, surgery, or radiation treatment. Childhood cancer survivors have been found to have higher risks of heart disease, infertility, lung disease, secondary cancers, as well as other chronic conditions, which are largely related to their prior chemotherapy, radiation, or surgery. Because the organ systems of children who are diagnosed with cancer are still developing, they are vulnerable to the toxic effects of treatment. And as a result, these cancer treatments can harm the body's organs, tissues, and bones and cause these health problems later in life that we're seeing. Ye says that as survival rates of childhood cancer have improved, researchers have been able to look for less intense and less toxic forms of treatment. But she says that intense treatments are still needed to fight many pediatric cancers. She says the challenge moving forward is finding ways to minimize the negative effects of treatment without reducing their effectiveness. The United Nations Security Council is condemning recent attacks on health workers in war zones. The resolution came just days after a Syrian warplane bombed a hospital operated by Doctors Without Borders in Aleppo last week, killing 20 people. Speaking at the UN, the head of the French Medical Relief Agency accused several governments, including the U.S. and Russia, of directly attacking medical workers or participating in coalitions that have done so. Last year, a U.S. attack on a Doctors Without Borders hospital in Afghanistan killed 40 people. This week, American officials offered their, quote, profound condolences for the attack. But according to Foreign Policy magazine, Doctors Without Borders was not satisfied with a U.S. inquiry into the bombing. American officials determined that no war crimes had been committed because the military was unaware it had struck a hospital. And this tense exchange at the U.N. comes amid growing concerns over the safety of healthcare workers in Syria and elsewhere. According to the Red Cross, in the past three years, there have been 2,400 documented attacks against patients, health personnel, facilities, and ambulances in 11 countries at war. Experts are warning this week that the U.S. is not ready for a Zika outbreak, even though the spread of the disease will likely be minimal. Experts met at Emory University to discuss strategies for addressing the outbreak. One weak point, the lack of a unified mosquito control program in the U.S. Scientists tell NBC News that could allow the mosquito that carries Zika, the Aedes aegypti, to spread more easily. Infectious disease officials in the U.S. have been warning for several weeks that we'll likely see a small outbreak of Zika once the mosquito season begins to heat up. President Obama is still waiting on Congress to pass a $1.9 billion emergency spending bill that would be used to fight the Zika virus. Finally, this episode, honoring a legend in the field of nutrition. This week, the Harvard Chan School helped Walter Willett celebrate 25 years of chair of the school's Department of Nutrition. 
At a special symposium, speakers hailed his contributions to the field of nutrition research, ranging from his research highlighting benefits of the Mediterranean diet to his work that highlighted the dangers of trans fats. Willow was also praised for work that helped change our perceptions of what healthy food can taste like. In 2013, he worked with the Culinary Institute of America to launch Menus of Change, a push to have restaurants cook food that's both healthy and environmentally sustainable. According to Greg Drescher of the Culinary Institute of America, one way to do that is by treating meat as a condiment. For so many years, we simply told people to eat more fruits and vegetables, like we told people to stop smoking and we told them to wear their seatbelt. Didn't get us very far. It was important, you know, good to know, but it doesn't get uh, people to eating a lot more fruits and vegetables. So what happens if you bring chefs in and you start uh, uh, working with uh, herbs, spices, and aromatics to uh, increase the impact of smaller amounts of meat as a condiment? Starts to sound like the Mediterranean diet or traditional diets of Latin America and Asia. But this is the kind of thing that you get as a result, right? Roasted vegetables plus the World Spice Kitchen plus healthy fats, all kinds of fabulous flavors that are appealing. It doesn't feel like penitence. It feels like something you would sit to, want to sit down and enjoy. Another strategy, this happens all the time in the food service industry, we give people a, a choice between regular and unleaded. You want a uh, you know, double bacon cheeseburger uh, with, with all the works. Uh, oh, you're looking for something healthier? Here's a portobello mushroom burger, or here's a vegan something or other. It's like, okay, but I'm not vegan, but I didn't necessarily want the you know, incredibly indulgent once-in-a-lifetime burger. We, we rarely offer things in between. If you're interested in checking out some of the recipes inspired by menus of change, just head to our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. And I heard Greg Drescher speak at that symposium, and so one of the things he talked about as you're checking about the recipes was really creative ways to cook vegetables. So grilling them or like really intense aromatic spices, so kind of a way to kick up those veggies. Excellent. So invest in good spices and we'll be eating better all around. Exactly. And they, they, I saw the pictures. They look delicious. So I, I do recommend checking them out. Uh, that's all for Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Monomiro. You can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And we'd love to hear what you think about this podcast. So if you have a few minutes, leave us a review. 